The first speaker is Dr. John, um, John Kennedy from the University of Toronto, not far from where I grew up. His co-author is Igor, I hope I have this right, Yurichevich, is that correct? Who will speak to us about a very fascinating case, um, um, rather in, uh, multiple cases, also has a book recently published as well, which you will also share with us, is that correct? Dr. Kennedy, please. Thanks, Latvi. It's just wonderful to be here, and uh, an awful lot of what I'm going to do, uh, I've, I've really got to acknowledge and thank very many people for the influences on many of the ideas I'm going to introduce to you, though I can add that I will also challenge many of the ideas that were offered this morning. But that's part of the game, isn't it? To realize what the assumptions have been that kind of blinkered us, narrowed us for too long, challenge those assumptions, and see what results. And I know that Elizabeth from AEB, at one point I was trying to describe some of what I took to be possible limitations around tactile pictures, and she would have none of it. Thank God, thank heavens, I, I really appreciated that. It made me stop and think and say, no, let's not just assume some of those limitations, let's march forward wondering where we can go from here. And I particularly want to uh, draw attention today, perhaps, well, there's lots of names up there, but two in particular, um, the last two, Anne Cunningham did some work uh, with a, a class of blind people, asked them to make all kinds of drawings, and her work influenced some of the questions that I later asked other people. And uh, David Feeney is somebody I've just gotten to know uh, in the past couple of months. David, are you here? Yes, you are. Please stand and be recognized. Thank you. Would you all like to acknowledge David, who's joined us for the first time? David has a PhD he has just written at Trinity Dublin. Uh, is it Trinity, is that right, or UCD? Trinity. And it's on the idea of beauty in touch and vision with reference to writings by Singh and Yeats and Brian Friel and also writings by blind people themselves. And probably the first lesson we should learn is never trust anybody who is sighted. <laughs> Writing about vision. Because we do not yet have a good theory of vision. And similarly, do not trust anybody who is blind writing about touch because we do not yet have a good theory of touch. I think it's going to be a much wilder theory in 10 or 20 or 30 years than it currently is. Much more ambitious. And it will reflect many of the things that Fiona spoke about today, which is, in essence, how do you get from shall we call it an impression or a sensation in touch, to an idea. And in fact, the whole relationship between perceiving anything in any way through any modality and conceptualization, that is up for grabs at the moment. And on that, I recommend Sonia Sedevi, who gave a talk to my research group uh, about a month ago, I don't think anybody understood a word that she said. <laughs> she's a philosopher, and she's writing about the relationship between perception and cognition, and that is a mystery. Behold, I reveal unto you a mystery, not something settled. 
And what I want to challenge today is all of the ideas that you have had about perspective in vision or in touch. And so if you are blind and you have been blind since birth and you are interested in pictures and you would like to participate in my research, you probably should leave this room right away <coughs> so that I can then come to you later and ask you to tackle things that were tackled by a blind man from Turkey who has very little education at all, Eshref Armahan, uh, a bit of grade school education. And of course, like all sighted people, he has heard things being said about, oh, you know, things in the distance look small, or railroad tracks converge in the distance. So he's heard that kind of thing. And people have told him, yeah, you can draw railroad tracks converging on a picture. But what would you make of that? Because actually, there's a very large number of things you could make out of that. And I'm going to show you what he did but I'm, I'm going to tell you that I think, and this is speculative, that he did these things, not because he'd heard that stuff, <coughs> but because observers have a very good sense of the directions of objects around them, whether they are sighted or blind. So I talk to blind people, and I say to them, I'm working on perspective, and they say, oh, I'm blind, I'll never understand perspective. So I say to them things like, well, you know, we're sitting in the bar, and I say, okay, I'll tell you what, imagine you are on a large street. You're on some large street in Paris, the Bois de Boulogne, somewhere, and there are two trees on either side of the street. Point to them. So they do. They put their arms out at about 180 degrees, pointing to the two trees, because they're in the middle of the road. And I say, okay, there's two more trees uh, 10 meters down the road if you're from Canada, 10 yards down the road if you're from New York, and they make their arms converge to point to those two trees. And then I say there's two more trees, 10 more units of whatever kind further down the road. <laughs> Could you point to them? They make their arms converge yet again, but not as much as the angular change the first time. And then I say two more trees, two more trees, Two more trees, two more. And they make their arms gradually converge. And you know what? Their arms don't cross over. Although the trees are going off in the distance, and they're making their arms converge toward e towards each other, they never cross them over. They stop with their arms parallel. And then, of course, they're pointing to the horizon. That's where all things are going to. And I say, uh, you, see, you see that? That's perspective. And they say, oh, is that perspective? Oh, I've always understood perspective. <laughs> right? So I think there is a sense of the vantage point of the observer that is present in touch and is part of the daily business of making your way around in the world. And it's there for the sighted and the blind. And then the question is, how do you make use of it? And then, behold, I reveal unto you yet another mystery. Sighted kids don't draw very well in perspective, even though they're using it all the time. There's some kind of an unfolding that goes on that gets you the ability, gradually, to make use of some of the stuff that's in perception and get it into a picture. And that stuff about getting it into a picture is its own special step, and it probably, here I speculate, has its own developmental sequence 
that takes you from sort of just sort of scribbling and then drawing just one shape, one part of the object accurately in true form, all the way up to understanding these things about direction and somehow modeling that on the picture surface. And that developmental sequence, here is the big hypothesis, is the same in the sighted and the blind. That's the big hypothesis. That's the thing we want to test. That may be true or false. It's an empirical claim. And I think all of the evidence for it is, so far, is that it's correct. And I just was handed today uh, a, a book by a German author, Yeleshwer. Are you here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Say, wave hello. Oh, hold up your book if you have it right there. And the pictures that you have from, tell me your name again. Enke Solich. And her book is full of pictures by blind children that look exactly like, to my eye, the pictures that I got from blind children in Canada, the United States, Haiti, Europe, and now one of my students went to work in the Philippines. Went to a school for the blind in the Philippines, discovered that the teachers were telling the kids to wash the floor and wash the windows and keep things neat. And she said, you know, you're vastly underestimating what these kids can do. And they said, prove it. And she whipped out this book that I'd written, Drawing on the Blind, and said, look, they can draw. And you don't never ask them to do this. And she, they, she whipped through it and showed them. And they said, well, let's see. So they had the blind kids make drawings. And lo and behold, they could make drawings. And now, of course, they're selling the drawings <laughs> and raising money for the school. Throughout the world, from, for 50,000 years, we thought of pictures as something for sight. I think that's false. Just the way Diderot thought that imagery had something to do with color. False. You don't have to have color, and you don't have to have sight to be on the developmental sequence. So let's have a look at some drawings by Eshref. So I asked him, uh, Joan Aronsell is the person who speaks Turkish and is from America, speaks English, and so she translated my requests, and we asked uh, Eshref to draw a cube, and then a cube balanced on a point with one vertex pointing toward the observer, and then a cube that had been moved to the side so that uh, the front and the side were not evident. And he drew wire cubes. And you'll see, with great interest, I hope, the first one looks like one of those sort of drawings that you're taught to make of a cube. And the next one balanced on a point. The question was, could he just transform his, his work? And the answer is yes. He drew a very nice picture of a wire cube with a vertex pointed towards the observer. And then his third drawing was of a cube moved to the side. And he said, OK, now the side is you know, pointing towards me as well as the face. So I am going to make the side narrow, narrower as it goes back to show its receding. Furthermore, he foreshortened the side. He made it project or be a smaller extent on the page than the front, even though, of course, in reality, the front and the side are identical because it's a cube. So he's using foreshortening and convergence. And he can transform his cube on request. Now, that's brilliant. But you notice that that's one point perspective. That is, one side or a couple of sides are shown narrowing. And they're always narrowing in the same direction. 
two-point perspective would involve narrowing in two directions. So one-point perspective is there are cubes, there is a picture plane, and there is an observer. And there are directions to the cubes. And where those directions intersect the picture plane, the surface, that's where you draw the cubes. That's why the front face projects as one thing, but the sides project really quite differently depending upon where the cube is. So one-point perspective gives you square front faces. It gives you sides that are narrowing and tops that are narrowing. Now, a, a strange mystery arises here, noticed by Leonardo and Piero della Francesca. If you draw in perfect perspective, cubes that are further off to the side look distorted. And Piero and Leonardo said, this is terrible. We're drawing in perfect perspective, but the customers are complaining. <laughs> and so they made a rule. Don't show the cubes to the side. And we've done that ever since. We don't show the marginal distortions. So we need to explain how vision uses perspective and can't use perfect perspective often. So you draw the, the tops, say, receding. And if you see them a long, long, long way, they'll all come to a point, one point perspective. So we asked uh, Eshref to draw two cars on a road. He did indeed make the road narrower as it receded, but he also drew the further, further car smaller and drew the hoods and the tops all appropriately in perspective and smaller. Very nice little drawing. Then we asked for a table. Now, very few people tell you to draw in perspective with the sides of the tabletop narrowing to show it. Often people draw it as a parallelogram because it looks fine in vision, another mystery. Why do the parallelograms look good when they violate perspective? But he used one-point perspective to show the top of the table, the two sides narrow. The front edge and the far edge are parallel. If he'd rotated the table, he would have had to draw all sides narrowing, and he would have had two-point perspective. And he draws in the chairs, and he makes the far chairs be obscured by the uh, edge of the table. Uh, we also asked him to draw something that we'd asked Tracy from New York to draw, glasses, two rows of glasses, three glasses per row, marching away across a tabletop. Two rows, six glasses in all. He makes the near glasses be large, the middle row glasses be middling sized, and the furthest ones are smaller. And he changes the spacing between the glasses so that he ends up with nice two-point perspective and regular changes in size reflecting distance. Very nice little drawing. Um, two-point perspective, if you rotate the tabletop, or rotate the cubes so they no longer have a face parallel to the picture plane, then you end up with the tabletops or the tops of the cubes narrowing in two directions. So there's two edges that are pointing and narrowing towards the right. Since this whole thing is a diamond shape now to the picture plane, there are two other edges that are narrowing and coming together towards a point to the left. Two-point perspective, narrowing to the left and the right. 
As far as I know, the first time that that was used systematically was in the Italian Renaissance by Brunelleschi. And he never wrote down his solution. So Alberti was left to guess at what Alberti had done. Sorry, at Brunelleschi had done. So we asked Eschref to draw the same kind of thing that Brunelleschi had tackled, a building with two sides receding at 45 degrees each. So this is a house with a frontal edge pointing toward you. The front of the house recedes to the right. The end wall of the house recedes to the left. And the first time he drew this, he just used parallel perspective. All the edges were parallel. But then he said, no, no, I could do this. And he seemed to invent two-point convergence right in front of me, right here when we tested him in New York when AEB brought him over. I have looked at many of his pictures, many of his paintings, and this man, totally blind since birth, has used one-point perspective. In many of those, he never used two-point, but he seemed to invent it right here in New York about a year ago. Fascinating. So here's his house. Two sides are narrowing. And if we, if we draw out where they narrow to, they almost, the two points that they narrow to, narrow to, if we join them with a straight line, it's almost horizontal. It's the horizon. And it's very close to horizontal, as the horizon should be. I'm not quite sure what he, whether he meant that because I did not know enough at the time to ask him the right questions. I took it back, showed it to Igor. He asked me all kinds of good questions, and that's why he's the co-author. <laughs> my student explained things to me. Two-point perspective. If we make the uh, cubes be at different distances from the picture plane, then we get the furthest cube smaller than the nearest one, and it will look in vision. So like the furthest cube is distorted. It's too narrow to be a cube. That's what Leonardo and Piero said. Don't show to people. Otherwise, you won't eat. <laughs> Two-point perspective. You join the tops, the sides, and they narrow in two directions. OK, so I asked Eshref to draw a cube sitting in front of him. A cube to the left, and a cube still further to the left. And he stopped. He said many of these tasks were new to him. I think this was new to him. He stopped. He held his hands in front of his face, slightly tilted with respect to the ground. And he didn't talk. He stood there a minute. And then he started to draw, and he drew this picture of three cubes. And you will notice the cube directly in front is shown with the top and the front only because the other sides are tucked behind. The cube first to the left, the middle cube, shows its top, its front, and its side. And now it's smaller than the cube to the front because it's further away, perhaps. And the cube that is furthest to the left is smaller still. You will also notice, curiously, some angles seem to change. I will need to explain that to you. So the tops all narrow, roughly in the direction sort of up the picture plane. The sides, the tops narrow towards the side because they're all getting smaller. So we now have convergence up and convergence to the left, two-point perspective. 
if you tilt the picture plane, a curious thing happens, of course, because now the front faces of the cubes now have a near edge and a far edge with respect to the picture plane, so they start to narrow vertically. Think of it like this. If you were Spider-Man flying above the Empire State Building and somebody was to take a picture sort of facing down of you flying above this, you would have the front face of the Empire State Building huge when it's near you, the rooftop, and as it shoots away down to the sidewalk, it gets smaller and smaller in angle. It's converging in the vertical dimension, the third direction of space, besides left and right and far away, and that's the third dimension. And so there should be convergence in that when you get three-point perspective. So three ways. So one D for SREF dimensional convergence is up the picture plane towards the horizon. The second dimension is off to the side, to the left. And the third dimension is down. And you will notice that the leftmost cube has its sides at a strong angle. Both of them are leaning so that if you join the extension of those sides, it comes to below the middle cube. That's three-point perspective. Curiously, I just read the first time three-point perspective was used systematically or thoroughly in art was the 20th century. And it wasn't used reliably and steadily in any art or technical stuff until maybe 100 or 200 years after Brunelleschi. So Brunelleschi really gave us two-point perspective, and it led automatically to three-point, but its use is living memory in art. And Eshref seemed to invent it right in front of me a year ago. What does that mean? Well, surely it means something about three-point perspective and perspective in general is not solely visual. It's also in touch. Surely it means that. Not necessarily, because Eshref's 50 years old. Did people tell him something when he was 20, when he was in his teens, and all he's done is remember that? It's, con it's conceivable. I just don't believe it. And I think the way to test it isn't just to go and ask Eshref more questions. It's to get more blind people who have drawn for years and decades and test them. Blind people who didn't go through that thing where you go to school and you say, I'd like to make, <coughs> excuse me, I'd like to make some pictures. And the teacher says, you can't. You're blind. <laughs> You know, I'd like to get some pictures out of the library. Well, they won't do you any good because you're blind. It'll only frustrate you. I've heard that many, many times, and blind people have repeated it to me. Well, that was a mistake we made 50,000 years ago, and I think it's time to change it. So maybe it's something like this. Vision has trouble with perspective on its margins, especially. And sighted people had to take thousands of years to learn how to draw in perspective and overcome whatever the problems are in vision. But actually, it may be an easy route for the blind because they have a good sense of the directions of objects. And if they draw a lot, maybe they'll all make the same discoveries that Eshref did spontaneously on their own if we just give them the materials and the encouragement. So I conclude. Eshref drew in what I think is a rough approximation to a 3D perspective, three-point perspective, that he may be the second person in history to discover 
three-point perspective. He uses outline for the edges of surfaces without any question, without really understanding, I think, what he's doing. And I think all blind people do that spontaneously. It's just an intuition. Use lines for edges of surfaces, same thing as the sighted do. He uses the vantage point of the observer systematically and coherently and well, extraordinarily well, I think because he practiced a lot of drawing. It may well be that drawing development in the blind is much like drawing development in the sighted, and the only way to find out is to encourage them. Give them general encouragement. The same sort of encouragement we give for the sighted when we say, and they say, you know, here's my picture, and they're seven years old, and you say to them, that's nice, dear. And you don't say, oh, let me teach you exactly how to draw in three-point perspective. You just say, that's good. Keep at it. Maybe if we do that, blind people will go through a drawing developmental sequence like the sighted. That the forms of projection that are the top possible forms of projection, since there's only three dimensions of space, are one, two, and three point convergence. That's all. That, that's it. That's the top end of drawing development so far as space is concerned. So he's gotten there. And I don't think any sighted person has ever gone further, because I don't think it's possible. So it looks like the top end is available to the sighted than the blind, and maybe the top end is easier to reach by the blind. If all of this is true, we need a revolution in our understanding of how it is we see constant objects as they recede from us and change their angle, as how we understand the constant size of objects when they recede from us if we're blind and we appreciate their angles are changing. We need a revolution in perspective distortion and its understanding and vision, and I think Igor has actually solved the problem this year. Uh, we need to rethink what it means to have vision, and we need to rethink what it means to have touch. Thank you very much.